Well, good morning, everyone. Hope you're having a wonderful beginning to Halloween. I see some costumes in the audience. And I must say that I'm, I'm really, really grateful for uh, the fact that we get to love our community the way we are. I'm so grateful for these stories, um, that we can create a safe place for kids to trick or treat. Um, that's crazy. I just love that we get to do that. And uh, Halloween is such a community-driven uh, day. I'm from South Africa. We never ha celebrated it this way. And you get here and you just see so many people out in the streets connecting with each other. It's amazing. So just so grateful. And you heard earlier that the kids are doing the mega awesome costume party and just creating memories and all that stuff. My kids, I've got two boys. They're both teenagers. So they joined in on the punny costumes. Um, so I thought I'd show you just to go show, you know, we love what's happening out there. My, my son's names are Berkeley and Luke. And so I want to introduce you to Berkeley, California. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then let me introduce you to Luke. I am your father. <laughs> I'm still freaked out about that. I don't really know if I like it. But we did name him Luke so that I could say, Luke, I am your father as many times as I would like. Um, so we're, we're super stoked about what's happening in students and in uh, children's ministry out there, children's environments. We're so grateful that kids can come and have these memories and connect with people and do that. And, and not only that, but learn so much as well and connect with adult leaders who are willing to dive in with that as well. We're just so, so grateful. I'm personally so grateful for the people leading and investing so much in there. And then also just what we get to do in the community. So um, thanks for making that possible. We're super grateful. But I guess we do need to start a series today. So let me stop talking about Berkeley, California and Luke, I'm your father, and let's dive in. Um, <clears throat> I am really grateful that we're here today, whether you're online or, or here in the room, that we get to start a conversation. And I think it's a really, really, really important conversation, especially because of kind of the, what's going on in the Christian world today and how so many people are experiencing Christianity. Last week, Amber introduced brilliantly this idea of doubt and how she kind of took us on a journey of, of, of some of the doubts that she's walked through and, and went to this beautiful scripture showing how Jesus kind of navigated someone's doubt. And I'm so grateful that she brought this idea of doubt out, up because I think it's a really important conversation to have. It's an important idea to look at right now. If you're on social media, um, no doubt you've bumped into this reality of deconstruction of faith. All over social media, you see people kind of throwing something out here, throwing something out there. I've, I've bumped into this uh, hashtag. Maybe you've seen it, the hashtag exvangelical. Anybody seen hashtag exvangelical? Basically what it is, is it's a way to express someone's journey, and they use hashtag exvangelical to express their journey away from evangelical faith. And hashtag exvangelical. Um, and as I've watched this, and as I've listened to podcasts, as I've read up what people are saying, it's actually been an emotional journey for me, a really emotional journey, because it reminds me of a conversation I had with one of my best friends several years ago. Um, I, I, you know, we were really close, close friend, incredible person. We, we actually did ministry together. We grew in our faith together. I remember reading scripture together going, oh my gosh, is that what that means? This is amazing. And, and like I said, we did ministry together. And then because life happens, our paths sort of took different directions and he moved far away and got married and kind of did his thing. A few years later, he called me. <clears throat> I had moved to the States already then as well. And he called me 
And he said, Justin, I have a bomb to drop. Are you ready? Are you sitting down? And then he said this, I no longer believe that God exists. And, and, and he shared how he had walked away from his childhood and now his adult faith. And it was a really disorienting and hard conversation for him to have. And it was really disorienting and hard for me to hear it. But he told me, I can no longer believe this. I've tried. I've wrestled with it. But he could no longer be honest with himself and believe the stuff that he had believed growing up and when we did ministry together and read and studied together. And we had a long emotional and difficult discussion about it, but he just told me, I can't see it. I can't see it. And then he shared with me, he said, if I could see a miracle with my own eyes, then I would believe. I'd believe that. Of course I'd believe that if I could see a miracle with my own eyes. And then he said something so interesting to me. He said, Justin, I trust you. I know you, I know you're, you know, I trust your integrity. So if you saw a miracle, a physical miracle that could not be explained in any other way, then, then I would believe you. Even if I didn't see it, if you saw it, I would believe you, and then I would believe. But we couldn't do that. And so he walked away from something that had defined him for so many years, and it was really hard again for both of us as we navigated that journey. And so in reading these evangelical things, in reading this deconstruction of faith, it's been a very emotional journey. And I mean, that was years ago. Now with social media, this has been a public conversation in so many ways. I bumped into a very well-known YouTuber and podcaster um, the other day who had released an episode on his podcast, and he used his name. I'm taking his name out just because uh, he called this episode, My Spiritual Deconstruction, in which he explained in his words, why I don't believe what I used to believe. And he took about an hour and a half to talk about what it was that he bumped into and what it was that made him go, no, I don't buy that anymore, and I used to buy it, and I used to do this, I don't believe it anymore, an hour and a half. And then later, he published an article on medium.com, which is a website that I don't know if you know it, it, it boasts about 100 million readers. And anybody can submit an article to this thing. And he posted this, this article on medium.com where he described the response to his podcast saying, you know, this is my spiritual deconstruction. Here's what he said in the article. He said this, <clears throat> recently, me and my lifelong best friend and business partner made a decision to share publicly the stories of our journey away from evangelical Christianity. This wasn't a decision either of us took lightly. We knew well the perils of wading into the polarizing waters of openly discussing faith. Then he shared some of the details of what happened, and then he said this, an overwhelming number of the responses to our stories came from those with similar experiences whether they are struggling with doubting a long-held faith or have been through their own process of deconstruction, these stories have lodged themselves in my heart. I understand the anguish, sleepless nights, and countless tears that come with abandoning your orienting principle of life. It's the most painful thing I've ever done. I read those last lines and it's emotional. And sometimes Christians get mad at people deconstructing faith, as if it's something that they want to do. Yay, let me abandon the thing that I based my life on for my whole life. 
And sometimes Christians get mad at people struggling and questioning and deconstructing faith as if it's an attack on them. But if you actually take time to listen to people struggling with this and wrestling with this and deconstructing, what you'll hear is pain and confusion and difficulty that come along with, as he said, abandoning your orienting principle of life. And that's exactly what I experienced in that conversation with that friend of mine. That's exactly what he said. And I don't think, I don't think God is up in heaven getting angry at people who are questioning their experience of faith. In fact, in Amber's message last week, she showed brilliantly how Jesus, his response was compassionate and understanding and gracious towards the most famous deconstructor, the most famous doubter, doubting Thomas. Jesus' response wasn't anger, it was compassion, it was understanding. So what I wanna do now is I wanna go back and just quickly read some of what Amber said last, last week so we can kinda of get on the same page because I wanna look at what Jesus said next. I wanna look at how he said it and I wanna look at what John said straight after that. But to catch us up with what Amber said last week, I wanna show you, and we're gonna to turn to John chapter 20, verse 19, where this is happening. And the context of what had just happened is John, who, who claimed to be an eyewitness of all this stuff, who wrote this down for people to read and see what he was saying. John had said that Jesus had just died on the Friday. He had just died. It was Sunday now. And, and, and somehow there was a woman named Mary who came running to them saying, I've seen the Lord. And they're going, What? This is crazy, this is Sunday now, and everything's crazy, they're afraid, they're scared, they're doubting everything they've ever believed about Jesus because it all fell apart. John's writing this, and Mary comes and says, I've seen the Lord. So this is the context, John 20, verse 19. It says this, on the evening of that first day of the week, that Sunday, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. You know why? Because those Jewish leaders just had Jesus killed. And they were afraid that they were going to come after them as well. They knew who they were, and they were afraid. And I think they were afraid because everything they had believed about Jesus, everything they had hoped about Jesus, everything they had given their life to was gone. They thought he might be the son of God, and now he's dead. The son of God can't die. They were sitting in this room locked, doubting everything. I mean, their faith was rapidly deconstructing. <laughs> in that room, but then John tells us this, and this was John's experience. He was sitting in there for fear of the Jewish leaders, the door's locked, Jesus came. <laughs> imagine, imagine, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. They saw him, <laughs> they spoke to him, and it blew their minds because they had lost everything. They saw him die. They knew he was buried in a tomb that was sealed and guarded by these Roman soldiers. It was over, and now they were talking to him. I mean, it's crazy. And this is where Amber jumped in on the story because Thomas wasn't there. John 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. We've seen him, this is crazy. But Thomas wasn't there. He didn't see him. He saw him die, he knew he'd buried, and dead people don't come back to life, dead people are dead. And so no matter what they said, this was his honest expressed doubt. But he said to them, unless I see him, 
Unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger in where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. I can't, guys. I can't believe. And I don't know, yes, I hear you saying that, but, but you're so crazy right now. You're so afraid right now. You're so, you, you've lost everything. Are you just emotionally hoping that this was true? Maybe you saw someone that looked like him. And you're just wanting this to be real. You're going, you've given so much for it. Can't we just keep the move alive, keep the whole thing to, together? Can't we just make this work? Maybe you saw someone that looked like him. No, 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 I need proof. I need to see the nail marks in his hand. Uh-uh, I can't believe. I can't be honest with myself and pretend to believe something I don't believe. I can't, guys. I will not believe. And here's the reality. I am so glad Thomas was there. I really am. I'm so glad there was an outspoken skeptic standing there going, uh-uh, I can't believe this. Because if there wasn't an outspoken skeptic, then who knows how this thing started? Who knows if they were just, I think beards were pretty popular back then, you know, long hair, beards, the whole thing in a robe. I think most people dressed like that. They just saw a dude that might have looked like that and they just made it up. I don't want it to just be made up based on the emotions of a few guys that loved Jesus and thought he was something. I'm so glad there was a skeptic who said, no, I will not believe until I see all the proof that undeniably proves that this guy, Jesus, is back alive because that's stupid, that doesn't happen, I don't believe it unless I see all the proof that I need. I love that there was a skeptic there because I don't want Christianity to have been begun, started with something that was just how people felt. And what's beautiful is that John and the other eyewitnesses, including opponents and skeptics like Paul, who hated Christianity, like James, who doubted Jesus in the beginning, his own brother. This whole thing, oh, there was a bunch of people who doubted this, but according to all of them, at some point along the way, they saw and experienced enough undeniable proof that helped a skeptic, a real outspoken skeptic, get to the place where he could no longer honestly doubt. And Amber showed last week how Christianity teaches and how Scripture, how the Bible teaches and shows that Jesus responded not with anger, not with frustration toward the skeptic, but toward this person deconstructing his faith, not with anger or frustration, but with compassion. Verse 26 shows that. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he looked at Thomas and said this to him. Put your finger here. See my hands. And last week, Amber focused on the, the heart, the compassion of it. Today, I want to show you that, that he said, look at the evidence. This is what you're looking for, right? Reach out your hand. Put it in my side where the spear hit me. Here is the evidence. And I think when he said, stop doubting and believe, I think he was also saying, can you doubt anymore? I know you doubt it, and I never want to make you believe something you don't believe. So here's the evidence. Can you honestly doubt anymore? And Thomas's honest answer, who said, I will not believe, was this. Verse 28, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Somehow he saw enough, and I love this moment because somehow, this is huge, John expressed as he watched this happen and wrote this down, somehow Thomas's faith 
like all the others, was no longer based just on hope, on what they made up, on, on their sort of desires, on something they created or invented. It was not based on that. It was now based on something he had seen with his own eyes. That's a big deal. And then, following that statement, Jesus actually spoke. He said something so cool. And in saying this, he actually spoke about you and me. Here's, here's what Jesus said. He said this. Jesus told Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed. And this is really important because Thomas's faith, like I said, was based not on something he heard, not on something he you know, hoped. It was based on what he seen. You, because you have seen, you have believed believed. And right after that, he spoke about you and me. He said this, blessed are those who have not seen. Who's not seen? You don't have to put your hand up. It's okay. I, most of us would probably, oh, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> we weren't there. We didn't get to see that. And Jesus spoke about you and me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I, I, think, I think what he's saying here is that if there's anyone who one day will be at all interested in discovering anything about Jesus, anything about his life, his teaching, his death, his gospel. That's who he's talking about, people who have not seen, those who have not seen. And he says, if you're exploring, so, so, so if you're exploring faith, if you have faith, if you're questioning faith, that's who he's talking about. Yeah? And I love that. And in talking about us in that way, I think Jesus is acknowledging something pretty important here. I think he's acknowledging that seeing would be easier. Right? Seeing would be easier. Not, not always, because the religious leaders of the day did see so many miracles. And yet, like there's, there's some eyewitness accounts that actually says, the gods who watched Jesus rise from the dead ran to the leaders and said, he's alive. And they, they paid them money saying, no, if anyone finds out about this, it'll cause a mess. Go and say that the disciples stole the body. They saw this and somehow their grab on their political and religious power made them choose not to believe. So seeing doesn't always do it. But Jesus acknowledged, hey, seeing is sometimes easier. But blessed are those who have not seen you and me. And yet, they have believed. So this idea of, of Thomas grappling with this and being a real skeptic who couldn't honestly trust this unless he saw the evidence and got to the place where he could honestly not trust it anymore. He could honestly not believe, not not believe. You know what I'm trying to say, right? He could honestly not go with his doubts anymore because he had seen enough evidence. It's a huge, huge, important conversation that John records. And then... John goes on to say something so big, and he actually writes down for us why he wrote this document, why he put this on paper in that first century. In John chapter 20, verse 30, he says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. We saw them. We saw it happen. He performed it in our presence. We got to experience them. It was crazy. We'd never believed this could happen, but it did. We saw, can't explain it properly, but man, it happened. Many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. And then he says this, but these ones that I wrote down, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here's what I think John was doing. 
He was claiming to be an eyewitness who got to see all this stuff, someone who Jesus asked to go and tell people about it. That's what he was claiming to be. And as an eyewitness, he wrote this stuff down with the express purpose that we, his readers, would believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Not just because so we could have some religion, but because he says, because by believing you would find life, some kind of life in his Name. So John's claiming, okay, so, so I saw this stuff with my own eyes, don't know how to explain it fully, I saw it, and I want to tell you about it. And you know what made, that made me think? That made me think of what my friend told me when he was saying, I haven't seen a miracle. If I did, I'd believe. And then he said to me, Justin, I trust you. I trusted you, and if you saw it, I'd believe. And that's exactly what John's saying. He's saying, I saw it. I saw a bunch of it, and I don't know, I wasn't expecting it. I mean, my buddy Thomas was like, "Uh uh-uh, I don't even believe the rest of you. I need to see it. I saw it, and I put it down, and I don't know how to explain all these incredible things, and the greatest of which is that Jesus died. I saw him dead on the cross. He looked at me and said, I need to take care of his mom. I was right there. I watched him die, breathe his last breath, bleed out. People don't survive crucifixions. I saw it happen. And then I talked to him. I don't know how to explain that. And I think what he's doing is he's going, I hope you believe me. I hope you believe me. I saw it happen. Would you believe what I put on paper, would you believe that? Which means, and this is, this is a big part, this is huge, which means a whole lot rests on whether we believe John and Mark and Matthew and Luke and Paul and James and Peter, all these guys who wrote down what they saw. A lot hangs on whether we think they're credible. Can we believe these guys? Can we believe, and can we believe the version of their writings that we still have today? Can we believe that? A lot hangs in that balance. A lot rests on that, doesn't it? And so over the next few weeks, what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at why, I personally, and look at why Christians and scholars and historians actually believe that what these guys wrote down is credible, that the documents that we have today can be trusted. We're going to go on a journey and look at some of the stuff. Why is it that we believe some of the stuff? Because it is crazy. It is hard to believe, and we haven't seen it. These guys claim to have seen it. Can we trust them? So we're going to go on a journey of that. But as we do that, if you're someone who is wrestling with some doubts, with some big doubts, if you're in a journey of deconstruction, or if, if, if you're someone who's not doubting, I think it's really important that we actually ask questions. I think it's really important that we do that. Because I think there needs to be space for questions for us to actually ask them, because if we don't ask questions, we may be believing some stuff that we don't even know why. We believe it. I think there's something healthy to doubting. Tim Keller actually explains this brilliantly in a book called The Reason for God. And in this book, he, he talks to kind of both sides, the, 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 the believers and the skeptics, people who do believe this and people who don't. And this is what he says, and I love how he says it. He says this, I recommend that each side, skeptics and believers, look at doubt in a radically new way. 
Because so often we as a church go, don't doubt, just believe. And he's going, no, 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 I think we should look at it in a brand new, radical new way. Let's begin with believers. And he talks to people who do believe this stuff. He says this, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts which should only be discarded after long reflection. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends and their neighbors. It is no longer sufficient to just hold beliefs because you inherited them. Only if you struggle long and hard with objections to your faith will you be able to provide grounds for your beliefs to skeptics, including yourself, that are plausible rather than ridiculous or offensive. And just as important, I love this last comment, such a process will lead you, even after you come to a position of strong faith, to respect and understand those who doubt. Brilliantly said, I think. And I love that, that what he's doing is he's showing that doubt isn't the enemy, but what we do with it, whether we wrestle with it fairly and honestly, is where the problem comes in. He says more, like that was him speaking to believers. He speaks to the other side as well. He says, but even as believers should learn to look for reasons behind their faith, skeptics must learn to look for a type of faith hidden within their reasoning. All doubts, however skeptical and cynical they may seem, are really a set of alternate beliefs. You cannot doubt belief A from a position, uh, except from a position of faith in belief B. So if I'm doubting that God exists, I have a belief of something that says God does not exist. There is a different faith system that I'm basing my perspective on that doubts this. If I don't think Christianity is the way to God, I'm basing that on in some faith system that I believe. He, he speaks into that. He says, some will respond to all of this saying, I have no beliefs about God one way or the other. I'm simply, I simply feel no need for God and I'm not interested in thinking about it. But hidden beneath this feeling is the very modern American belief that the existence of God is a matter of indifference unless it intersects with my emotional needs. The speaker, he says, is betting his or her life that no God exists who would hold you accountable for your beliefs and behavior if you don't feel the need for him. That may be true, or it may not be true. But again, it's quite a leap of faith he says, and then he, he summarizes it with this, and I love this. He says, the only way to doubt Christianity rightly and fairly is to discern the alternate belief under each of your doubts and then ask yourselves what reasons you have for believing them. How do you know your belief is true? It would be inconsistent to require more justification for Christian belief than for your own but that is frequently what happens. In fairness, you must doubt your doubts as well. And he says, my thesis in this book is that if you come to recognize the beliefs on which your doubts about Christianity are based, and if you seek as much proof for those beliefs as you seek for Christ from Christians for theirs, you will discover that your doubts are not as solid as they first 
appeared. And I love that he says this because I think he addresses faith properly. I think he addresses questions about faith properly, not in an angry or defensive way, not in a way saying, don't doubt. He he does it in a way that's fair and right, where questions are allowed to be questions, rather than a battleground between religious people and non-religious people. And man, how many battlegrounds do we have in our world today? Adding a place where questions are included in that just hurts and, and is not safe for anyone because it's about I'm right, no, I'm right. No, can't we just have questions? And I love that he says, no, 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 to be fair and right, we have to have questions. And he doesn't just speak to Christians, he speaks to Christians and skeptics saying, let's honestly look at these things. So in that context, as I've wrestled with my own doubt over the years, as I've struggled with different questions and walked through seasons of going, what is this doing? And that's scary to do. But as I've navigated all of that, I've come to the place where where, where if I can navigate it fairly, honestly, and rightly, I've realized there are some things that probably should be deconstructed out of this Christian picture. There are some things in the evangelical world that probably should be thrown out. There are some things, and if we don't have space to actually question, we never may bump into those. And what what I've discovered is there are some things that we can stand so solidly and firmly on as well. Some of the things that I think our Christianity of today needs to be deconstructed for, and we should deconstruct some of those things, are things like the moralism in churches that just goes against the gospel that Jesus brought. We, we spoke about this in a long, not a long, seven-part series, this last series we did called Two Rooms. We spoke about moralism and how that's the opposite of what Jesus introduced and Paul, the apostle who wrote a bunch of the letters in the New Testament, wrote about. We need to deconstruct some of that. And yet it's all over the place. We have to ask ask those questions. Another thing that I think needs to be deconstructed is the self-centered mess and the prideful judgment that seems to emanate from so many churches and hurt so many people. Another thing that needs to be deconstructed, I think, is the power-hungry churches and preachers who make Christianity something that most of us actually do kind of want to walk away from (laughs) I think that needs to be deconstructed. We need to deconstruct a lot of the mess of modern Christianity. And as I think about that, and I've been navigating this and looking at this and experiencing friends and and podcasters and all these people, I realize, gosh, we're not the first people to deconstruct. I don't know if you realize that. We're not the first ones who've gone on this journey. And as I read scripture and thought about it, I was like, wait a minute. If you read Matthew, who was one of the the, the eyewitnesses who wrote Jesus' life down, you go read Matthew 23. We're going to go there right now, and you'll realize that Jesus may have been the first deconstructor ever, actually, because he was living in a world where a religious system was so messed up, he came in and he publicly called people to look at this religious system, to look at these religious leaders and question them. And publicly said, don't go that way. I think Jesus may have wanted us to deconstruct a lot of this mess in the religious world. And in doing that, I think he tried to strip away all the junk to get to what can actually be stood firmly on, what could actually be trusted in. So what I want to do before I kind of summarize where we're going with the series and, and summarize what I've said, I want to go read Jesus' words and show you how, man, he was mad. 
<laughs> he read this stuff. He was upset. I want to show you his words and show you, hey, he said, there is something beautiful there, but not the mess. So Matthew 23, verse 1, I'm going to read several verses. He said this, then Jesus said to the crowds, this was public, this was, you know, first century Twitter and Instagram, okay? He said to the crowds and to the disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, those religious leaders, they sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. It's like, wait, 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 I thought they were the enemy. No, 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 they're sitting in Moses' seat. They, there is something good they're holding on to. There is something about God that is good to look at. Don't throw everything out. But, here we go, do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Sound familiar? They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not even willing to lift a finger to move them, which is the opposite of the gospel that Jesus brought. He said, I'm coming to bear a load that you can't bear. I'm gonna pick it up. I'm gonna take it to, and then allow you to connect with God on my merit, not on yours. That's not at all what they're doing. Verse five, he says this. Everything they do, these religious leaders, Everything they do is for people to see. It's not about God or truth or life or love or others. It's about them and how they look. They make their phylacteries wide. Phylactery is a weird word. Phylactery was these box. It's this box that they would tie to their foreheads and put scriptures in this box because they wanted to keep the word of God on their mind. Like legit, they actually did that. It's amazing. They were super holy. Halloween happened every day for these guys. <clears throat> They had these phylacteries, these boxes with scriptures. They make them wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at the banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi, which means teacher, by others. Jesus was not having it though. Verse eight says this, but you're not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher. And all, and all of you are brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father. He wasn't like talking about dads. He was talking about people who want to put themselves above other people with some title. Don't be called father, for you have one father, and he's in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. Don't put yourself above others. And then he says, this is how I want it to be. He says, the greatest among you will be your servant, not above other people. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And that's just the beginning because then Jesus tears into these guys. And I wanna read some of what he says. It's amazing. He says in verse 13, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Now, this is Jesus saying this. And if that's true, my word, that may be one of the most eerie, difficult lines that he said, because he's basically saying, religious leaders, by the way you act, by you putting yourself above people, by you being hypocrites, by you adding all this junk to this beauty of the gospel, you're shutting the door of heaven in people's faces. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to... Whew, Verse 15, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Listen to this, okay? You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make him twice as much the child of hell as you are. How do you really feel, Jesus? Right? <laughs> He's mad. 23, 23. 
Verse 23, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of spices, mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. You're doing all this religious stuff with these tiny little things and you forget to be just and show mercy and be faithful. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain at a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Come on. Verse 25, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish to look all good, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Jesus is saying, let's deconstruct the mess of religion that is all over the place in religious systems and religious, come on, religious leaders, let's deconstruct this. It's messing things up. Verse 26, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Verse 27, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Last little portion. Verse 29, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. In other words, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. We would have recognized them and we wouldn't have killed the prophets. Verse 31, so you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead, he says then, and complete what your ancestors started. <laughs> and they did. They were the ones who killed Jesus. So, <laughs> I don't think you can read that and think Jesus is okay with what's happening in the religious system. He's not okay. And I think he publicly called people to see it, to question it, to doubt it. I think Jesus started, and I don't want to minimize the deconstruction process that someone may be on. I really don't want to do that, but I feel like Jesus called people to deconstruct what they knew about the religious system of his day and the religious leaders by saying, don't do as they do. But here's the thing. Jesus, when he called people to do that, I don't think he was saying, let's get rid of it all. I think he was saying, and he said it. You know, they sit in Moses' seat, so hear them. I don't think he was saying, let's get rid of it all. I think he was saying, guys, there's a bunch of mess that's been added to all this stuff. And yes, question it, even question the good things. But there is something in the middle of this that we don't want to throw away. And if you can question it and ask the questions and get to what that is, I think you'll find something beautiful that is credible, that does actually make sense and gets you potentially like Thomas to a place, yeah, we never ever wanna make anyone believe something they don't believe. We can't do that as a church. You can't make someone believe something they don't believe. Thomas didn't. He had the 11 or the 10 other apostles. They were like, Thomas, it's true. He's like, nah, not gonna believe it. You can't make someone believe something they don't believe. But I think what Jesus was saying here is there's a mess. Let's question it. Let's move on. Let's deconstruct what we can deconstruct. But let's do it for the purpose of discovering what we can stand on and get to the place where you can't but believe that. And it's credible. 
and can be stood on. I think that's what Jesus was doing. And Jesus does give us so many incredible things that we can believe. And so over the next few weeks, here's what we want to do. I want to invite you on a journey to ask some questions. I think it's important to ask some questions and to find out why do we believe some of these things that we believe? Why do we believe them? Why do scholars, why do Christians believe? Are they credible? I believe they are. And I believe they're worth standing on. So if you're in a season of doubt and deconstruction, let's ask these questions. Let's go on a journey. And if you're a Christian and and you aren't doubting, let's give space for people to ask questions. Let's do that and go on this journey for the next few weeks. I do want to acknowledge one thing before I close today, though, and that's this. That, and, and I want to say this very clearly. I know that there's no way in a series that I can answer all the questions that you or a family member may have. There's no way that I can address all the doubts that you and a friend may have, and there's no way that I can navigate all the complexities. There's no way I can do that in a monologue. This is why I I really believe one-on-one relational connection is so important. This is why we talk about it at Rock Point as well, because it's in that context of a relationship that we can actually ask questions, not just a monologue, and we can actually give safe space to have these conversations, and we really believe that's important, but in a series, there's no way that I can answer all these questions. I simply wanna bring up the reality that we do doubt, we should, we do question, and there's room for that. It's important, but I also wanna show you why why we believe, why we think this is credible, why we believe the incredible reality that that God would reveal himself to us in Jesus Christ and why that's actually something that we can credibly stand on. So that's where we're headed for the next few weeks. Lastly, I wanna just say this, that if you wanna dive deeper into this, we're gonna spend a few weeks talking, but if you wanna dive deeper and actually, you know, ask these questions, look at it. A great resource is Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. If you wanna read that, man, I would highly recommend it. It's a brilliant book. He's so humble and honest and respectful as he writes. It was a book that was incredibly uh, challenging intellectually. It was beautiful. It's not that hard to read, though, but it challenged me intellectually, and it stirred me emotionally, especially as I thought about my kids, my friends, and us as we navigate this. So if you wanna dive deeper, Go read that book, The Reason for God by Tim Keller. So I hope you can join us over the next few weeks as we journey, take a journey of doubt and reason and faith and God and realize the importance of questions and finding credible answers to those questions. Thanks for being here. Let me pray for us and then we'll head out. Father, thank you so much. It's funny talking to you, being able to talk to you, standing here, being able to speak to you as we talk about doubt. Thank you, Father, that you've made a way for us to do that. Father, thank you for, for John, who, who was historical and, and met a historical Jesus and saw some things happen in history and wrote stuff down for us, telling us, like my friend asked, telling us, guys, I saw this and I don't know how to explain it. Would you believe what I saw? Thank you for these these writings, these documents that we have that we can see. Thank you for Thomas. Thank you that he did doubt. Thank you that he said, I can't believe until I see. Father, thank you for that journey. And then, Father, I 
I just want to pray that as we navigate this, as, as people in here or listening in are struggling with doubt and deconstruction, I pray that they will feel safe enough to ask and they will feel your compassion and our compassion and our understanding and respect as we navigate this together. And then, Father, I do pray that you will help us discover the credible reality of Jesus and the gospel that he brought. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.